How are you doing out there? It feels like the pressure's back on, doesn't it? I realised after the last podcast that I'd failed to address the north-south divide and the fact that many of you up in the north were already working in very difficult circumstances with rising levels of COVID, hospitals starting to fill up once again. The pressure was certainly back on. That's now obviously spread around the UK and I'm pretty sure that all practices are now feeling the pinch. And perhaps things might be easier because we know a bit more about what we're dealing with than we did six months ago. And we have some systems in place that can help us. But things are harder as well. Demand is back up. It's higher than ever. COVID precautions means everything takes more time. Onward services are hampered. So we're having to deal with more in primary care. We're all fatigued. We're all tired. Tired of the news, tired of change, tired of the fear of becoming unwell or our families getting ill, tired of the relentless uncertainty. And this isn't going to let up for a few months, I think. So it is more important than ever that we remember we need to make time to look after ourselves. In the words of Dr. Philip Hammond, make sure you have five bits of fun a day. So if nothing else, I hope that this podcast gives you a 20 minute break, time to relax, keeps you in the picture and maybe even makes you chuckle just a little bit. Now, I am not much of a comedian and my wife constantly says I make dad jokes, which now that I have children, I argue is entirely legitimate. But along those lines, I thought maybe I'd pepper today's podcast with just a few little jokes. No apologies. Let's get going. So what if I don't know the meaning of Armageddon? It's not the end of the world. It's Friday, the 23rd of October, and for better or for worse, this is the Hot Topics Podcast. So good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, whenever it is, wherever you are that you are listening to this podcast. Thanks for joining us once again. My name is Neil Tucker and I'll be taking you through the next 20 minutes of this Hot Topics podcast from NB Medical. I am very excited today because we are going to have our first interview. So over the next year, we're going to be having interviews with GPs and researchers sharing news and views that are important for us in primary care. Today, I've been joined by Philippa Davis, who's a GP in the Midlands. She's got a special interest in dermatology, and she'll be talking a little bit about the skin manifestations that are becoming apparent with coronavirus. But we still have a little bit of time to talk about the news and journals from the last couple of weeks. So COVID, 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 why don't we start with that? And firstly, some good news. So we seem to be having... Uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, less standard upper respiratory tract infections than normal, presumably thanks to all the measures we're taking to try and combat coronavirus. So there's less colds and less flu around at the moment. I've definitely noticed this in our own house. So within the first four days of my kids going back to school, fevers, cough, isolation, COVID tests, But since then, and it's been over a month now, they've been entirely fine. And this seems to be the the same for lots of the kids in the area. There's been relatively few coughs and colds going around when, in fact, normally we'd see absolute carnage at the start of a new nursery and school year. Now for the bad news. So the COVID symptom study. 
So the app that many thousands of people here in the UK, the US and in Europe have been uploading their symptoms to on a regular basis. This keeps on popping out interesting interpretations of its data. And the one that came out this week was on long COVID. So it suggests that if you develop coronavirus, you have a one in 20 chance of going on to have long COVID. Given the fact that we've had over 800,000 proven cases, let alone the unproven ones, in the UK alone, that seems like a staggeringly large amount of people that will have long COVID. Of course, these figures will need to be corroborated by some other mechanism. But if it is accurate, then that does represent a significant amount of disease burden for patients and a lot of morbidity that we're going to have to be managing predominantly in primary care um, coming into the next year or so. But it might not be as bad as the media had initially reported. So the study found that one in seven people who had symptomatic COVID-19 would be ill for at least four weeks, one in 20 for eight weeks and one in 45 for 12 weeks or more. So there definitely is an improving trend with time. And it also didn't separate out the phenotypes of COVID-19 infection that we're seeing. So people are being classed into different groups for presentation and also different groups for long COVID. And there's a big difference from someone who's still symptomatic at eight weeks with a bit of fatigue or a bit of a resolving cough compared with perhaps someone who at three or four months is still getting those marked episodes of fatigue lasting a few days or those who perhaps have lung fibrosis, for instance. It does tell us that you're more likely to get long COVID if you're female, if you're in your 50s and if you have asthma. And unsurprisingly, if you had more severe symptoms at the start of the infection. So I think this is a hugely useful piece of research that they're doing. Yes, it would be great to have some more answers. I'm sure over time it will continue to deliver. As things stand, it's one of the world's best tools in understanding what's happening in the real world to people to inform us about the effects, the duration and the trajectory of COVID-19. Now, the other really interesting thing in the news, of course, is the American elections. And while I'm sure there's lots and lots of material which you can switch on spitting image to watch about uh, American politics, should you wish, I'm going to just throw in this little joke. What's the difference between ignorance and apathy? I don't know and I don't care. Now, one journal that really does care about the outcome of the American election is the New England Journal of Medicine, and it seems to have devoted almost an entire journal to a scathing attack on the Trump administration and its policies over the last four years and the potential effects on the American health system if Trump is to remain in power. Should medical journals be apolitical? Ultimately, if the goal of a medical journal is to try and share information and improve the health of the nation and the world, then ultimately you do have a responsibility to assess the effect of politics upon your population. This has not been lost on JAMA either, who dedicated most of the journal to the death toll from COVID-19. It had a really powerful cartoon in one of the editorials just showing that the numbers of deaths that they're anticipating in America alone matches the total number of deaths that they had in the Second World War. Will we still be thinking about this pandemic as much as we think about that war in 75 years' time? JAMA also reported on um, two studies looking at verisiguate and pralisiguate 
answers on a postcard for the correct pronunciation of those, please. They are both oral soluble guanylate cyclase stimulators. That was a new one on me. Uh, They looked at them in preserved ejection fraction heart failure and found they didn't make any difference. I have no idea if they've been looked at in patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction, but I'm aiming to forget about these drugs uh, as fast as I've learned about them. Not much for us in the Lancet over the last couple of weeks, except a study published today on the prevalence of SARS-CoV-2 antibodies in US patients on dialysis, which basically shows what we already know. Lots more people seem to have coronavirus than get symptoms. Indeed, it found that only about 10% of people with antibodies had had a diagnosis. And then lastly, the BMJ and probably the biggest piece of research published this week in the BMJ is Q-COVID. So this is a risk prediction model from the Q research team. We're obviously all using Q-risk all the time. I think most of us have good belief in that as a useful tool. And now they've turned their attention to coronavirus because of the poor success of other risk prediction models. So it can predict your risk of catching COVID-19 and dying from it. And apparently there is good correlation between the model and what they've seen in the real world. But don't expect this to come to a computer near you anytime soon. This is very much about population level data and informing policymakers, not so much for giving us or our patients an idea about what their individual risk is. So with that blast through the journals and very limited research that's relevant to us in primary care over the last couple of weeks... I'm rather glad that we've got time to discuss something that is directly relevant to us, our practice and the patients that we've been seeing and will be seeing a lot of over the next few months. So joining us today, we've got Philippa Davis, who's a GP over in Worcester. And she contacted us after listening to the podcast because she has been doing the dermatology um, diploma through Cardiff University and has been doing a bit of research on the hot topic of the century, COVID. So hi, Philippa, how are you doing? Fine. Thank you very much, Neil. And thank you so much for having me on your podcast today. No, it's fantastic. It means I need to talk about less really, really banal stuff. And actually, we can um, we can talk about something that's quite useful. So just give me a bit of background. Tell me about yourself. So my name is Philippa Davis. I'm a salaried GP from Birmingham and I work in Worcester. I've always loved dermatology. So I'm also studying the postgraduate practical dermatology diploma via Cardiff. So tell me a little bit about what kind of research you've done and why did you decide to, to do this? So a few months ago, I'd seen a rather suspicious vesicular monomorphic eruption, which in the context of a recently resolved fever and cough, I immediately thought, could this be associated with COVID-19? I remember trying to recollect recent articles. And after seeing the patient, I started to read around this further for my own learning. There are some really helpful articles and research papers out there. So I thought I'd collate them and share my learning points in the hope that they might help others. As ever, I'm always pleased that someone chooses to do this. It's not my forte, so I'm glad it's someone else's. And I thought this was really interesting. Philippa had emailed us in with the findings of her research. And and it just made me think back to a few patients that I've been seeing over the last few months where I perhaps hadn't put two and two together. And that idea about this sort of vesicular monomorphic eruption really hit home. 
I was duty doctor a couple of weeks ago and I was fielding a call from a patient who had already been seeing one of our other GPs about this rash that had just spontaneously developed over the, um, uh, over a day or two on their torso, on their upper legs. And we couldn't work out what it was. It was kind of like a little poxy-like rash. And we thought, oh, maybe it's a re-eruption of, of chicken pox. So she'd had chicken pox as a kid. Do you know what? It, it all doesn't sound very likely, but we couldn't think of a better explanation. And after you'd emailed in, I suddenly thought, hang on a second, maybe she's got COVID. So maybe Philippa, just tell me, tell me about the main learning points from what you, what you found. So some really surprising learning points, actually, including just exactly how common this may be. And I think it's important to emphasise may because it depends upon which source is referenced. Some studies quote an incidence of only 0.19%, yet others quote an incidence of just over 20%. So potentially one in five COVID-19 presentations could be associated with a cutaneous manifestation. It's also really surprising to learn how occasionally the cutaneous presentation can be the only indication that a patient may have COVID. Some presentations have been reported prior to your classic COVID symptoms then occurring, some alongside these and some after the classic COVID symptoms have resolved. I came across an excellent consensus study which was conducted in Spain. It incorporated the results of 375 patients where they were able to categorise the skin presentations into one of five categories. Okay, so that's quite interesting. So we'll talk about those five categories in just a moment. At this point, I thought we can try and make this a little bit more interactive, the podcast, because obviously, as we're talking about skin conditions, one of the really useful things is to be able to see the actual rashes. And so if you are able to, so if you're out currently walking the dog or you're anywhere near traffic, this is probably not appropriate. But otherwise, if you're on your computer at home, for instance, then join in with this. Just pause the podcast and go on to this website. So the website is called covidskinsigns.com. I'll put the link into the podcast description. So depending on uh, what you're listening to this through, you'll be able to just see the link at the bottom of the description, click on it, and it'll take you to the website. If you're on kind of Apple Podcasts, if you're on Spotify, then they don't allow enough description to be able to do that. But you just go to the mbmedical.com podcasts page and it'll be there for you. So this page has been put together by the British Association of Dermatologists, and it's a collation of possible skin signs for COVID-19. There's a huge database of images that they've already collected via the COVID symptoms study app tool. And it's really, really, really useful. And as Philippa describes what she found with these five categories, you'll be able to click on the website and it'll show you those relevant pictures. So, okay, Philippa, tell us what they found then. So in the Spanish consensus study, they found the most prevalent presentation in this study, which accounted for almost 50% of presentations, were macular papular eruptions. They tend to present with pruritus and can vary in presentation from perifollicular scaly lesions to lesions similar to pityriasis rosea. They tend to occur at the same time as your more classic COVID-19 symptoms. Urticaria and pseudo-chilblain-like lesions, which are your COVID toes, they account for just under 20% of presentations, again associated with itching 
and the COVID toes can be quite painful. COVID toes tend to occur later in the disease process and theories for this include potential associations, including immune complex deposition in small to medium vessels and even microthrombi, although more research is needed in this field. Vesicular monomorphic eruptions, which is what we both spoke about earlier, these tend to occur less frequently, so just under 10% of presentations in their consensus study. Yet, interestingly, this presentation has been known to occur prior to any of your more classic COVID symptoms from occurring. So your findings suggest that about one in six people who have a vesicular eruption, it's actually happening before they then develop any of the other classic symptoms of COVID-19. So um, for those of you at home who are following this and looking at the COVID Skin Signs website, and you're looking at these vesicular monomorphic eruptions, you're probably thinking to yourself the same as we were thinking in my practice, which is this rash looks a bit like chicken pox. Is there a way to help differentiate between the two? And I suppose, do we know if this, is this COVID causing a reactivation of varicella and that's why we're getting the rash? Or is it um, purely driven by the actual SARS-CoV-2 virus? Yeah, so amazing question. And I, I think important to, to be aware that obviously more research is, is needed in a constantly changing situation. But from, from what I can gather, a really useful way of differentiating chickenpox from COVID-19 presentations is your chickenpox, so your varicella zoster virus, tends to present with polymorphic eruptions. Yet your COVID-19 presentations, they seem to present with monomorphic vesicular eruptions, i.e. the lesion are all in the same stage of evolution. Potential theories for why these presentations are occurring include potential associations with co-infections or reactivation of other viruses. So some papers also mention how there is an increase in herpes zoster cases, so a slight increase in shingles, and how others have noticed that patients can present with several cutaneous presentations in their disease process. There was a really useful paper which quoted a COVID positive physician who presented with large viral plantar warts on her hands. And they thought that actually this was secondary to reactivation of the likely dormant human papillomavirus. Finally, they also mentioned in their consensus study that levidoid and necrotic lesions are fortunately much less prevalent, although unfortunately they can be associated with more severe disease. Um, so one of the questions, I guess, that comes out of looking at this research is whether we know if skin presentations are likely in people who are asymptomatic. And I know that I had a, a friend who lives up in Birmingham and she, uh, in fact, her whole family, she, her husband um, and both her kids ended up having COVID toes. And actually, apart from COVID toes, I don't think they had any other symptoms at all. Um, they did have pretty painful toes for a week. It sounded pretty unpleasant, but uh, they didn't have any other symptoms. So is this a common finding in people with COVID, do we think? So there was a an article which was published in Up to Date, and it referenced the American Academy of Dermatology and the International League of Dermatology Society's uh, registry data. And they found that of the people who had COVID toes, 55% of those patients, that was their only presenting symptom of COVID-19. So presumably this could also be true for the other types of presentations, the macular papular eruptions, the urticaria and so forth. And that may be in otherwise asymptomatic patients, the only sign that they've developed COVID. 
Yes, exactly. So definitely something to be very vigilant for. I also love the idea of the um, the International League of Dermatologists. Uh, I think that that maybe that could be your long term goal for the big to get into that. I'm guessing they've got a uniform and you get to fly around with a cape. <laughs> that would be amazing. With all this in mind, how do you think that this knowledge should shape what we're doing in general practice when we're reviewing patients, when they're contacting us with rashes which don't necessarily have any of other obvious origin? So the the main purpose really of my research was to increase awareness of these cutaneous presentations. We know that it's not part of the UK's testing criteria, but it is really helpful to have this differential in mind when reviewing these specific presentations. I'm also working with the Primary Care Dermatology Society to produce an article in their next bulletin. So please keep an eye out for this as I've discussed these learning points in more detail. Thanks, Philippa. That's definitely food for thought. And I guess if you're lucky enough to be able to still have access to COVID swabbing in practice, then although they don't strictly meet the testing criteria from the government, which we know are quite flawed at best, shall we say, then um, maybe we should be thinking a little bit about these rashes a bit more. Well, thanks so much, Philippa. And yes, we'll keep a lookout in the Primary Care Dermatology Society's updates for more insights from you. Thanks so much. And thank you very much for all of you joining us at home today. We'll be back in three weeks. And as ever, do get in touch so you can get hold of us on our Facebook page, on Twitter. So at GP Hot Topics and at Dr. Neil Tucker. And of course, you can always send us an email, hottopics at nbmedical.com. Please do let me know your rubbish dad jokes. I need something to make me laugh over the next few weeks. Oh, and a big thank you whilst I remember for all your input with the committee of Pointless SHIT. I'm glad that touched a chord. Please do tell me where they've managed to infiltrate your own general practice. But still no one has managed to tell me who they are or where they come from. The mystery continues. Bye-bye.